Now, Quentin joins us. There he is, baby. How are you, Quentin? I am so, here, Jane. How are you doing? New York. All right, all right. I haven't seen you since Pulp Fiction. <laughs> now, here this... I am. Do I look just as handsome? Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're lucky I can't see you right now. But one of the things you said recently, is this true or were you misquoted, that children should see Kill Bill, advising kids to see it? Did you actually say that, or is that a misquote, Quentin? No, no, no. I, it's like... Uh... Uh, if, if it's an R-rated movie, if their parents will take them to go see it, they'll have a blast. I actually think from 12 up, all really? right, you know, is a really good audience that they will love Kill Bill. Why the need for so much gruesome graphic violence? Why not let us imagine? Because a it's so of it? much fun, Jan. Get really? it? Oh, really? Okay, I'd like to see you walk down the street and get attacked by some kids who've just seen your oh, movie. Oh, but you saw, but see, Jan, you're all messed up okay. because you're talking about real life. Oh, and I'm I see. Talking and kids about are 12. You gotta kids get it straight. Now, if you want to talk about the movies, we'll talk about the movies. Okay, and kids are 12. If you want to talk about real life, we'll talk difference. about real life. Mm -hmm. Kids go to a movie theater, they can tell the difference. Maybe mm -hmm. you couldn't when you were a kid, but I could. Okay, honey. We're getting the hook. You're doing well, obviously. You're laughing all the way to the bank. And I know some I'm parents having a great time making you. a terrific movie that people are having fun seeing. Maybe not you, but you know what, Jan? I don't think I made it for you. I bet you didn't, and I'm glad you didn't. Uh, I'm just sorry. Well, well, don't worry about that, we'll baby. Move on. Hello, hello again. Welcome to uh, part two of Tarantino season on diminishing returns, uh, where we are discussing the the filmography, the life work of Quentin Tarantino. Uh, and I am Sol Harris, and with me, as always, is Mr. Alan Turing. Hello there. And this week we are joined by special guest, uh, Mr. I'll go with your real name, Connor Murray. <laughs> yes, lads, what's the crack? <laughs> Hello, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for coming on. My pleasure, thanks for having me. Just to give a bit of background, uh, so when we had Judy on a few weeks ago, Alan, Alan was explaining whenever he's referred to a friend in the past that he's watched a film with, it was probably her. There's various episodes of this show, if you go back and listen, where I'll refer to a friend, and then I'll do an impression of them and be like, Hello there, I'm the friend here. <laughs> What's going on there? Uh, if I've ever done that, it was Connor. <laughs> so, <laughs> so now he's on the show. <laughs> well, I'm flattered, I'm flattered. <laughs> so, Connor, yeah, we again, we know you from university. We did, we studied film together. It was the bottom of the barrel that fast. <laughs> well, the idea is that you know about films. <laughs> that's that's the, the hope. Yeah, you know I love the films now, especially the Quentin Tarantino boy. You don't know about that. That's it. We we've got we've got a good uh, a good rapport, and hopefully you won't be scared to make fun of us. <laughs> so that's <laughs> that's the lifeblood of the show. Well, I'm not in control of the edit, so God knows what the fuck will happen. <laughs> oh man, I'm just gonna add in loads of like leprechaun sound effects, <laughs> Gareth. <laughs> I'm the leprechaun! No, no, I'm scared! Oh, I'm Mark Davis, I'm the leprechaun, and I'm going to eat your gold. Yo, man, want me gold? Uh, what other leprechauns are there in film shit? Um, I hear you're a racist now, father! Anyway, <laughs> so... So, um... Alright, so, uh... And Connor, of course, you... 
You lived with Saul and Calvin for a couple of years. That little tirade of mine was probably a pretty good indication of what living with me was like for that (laughs) period. So, um, just to explain to listeners, I might periodically refer to Connor as Nonna. Um, (laughs) I'll try not to, but it's a nickname. Because he he once got a letter addressed to him. (laughs) When we lived together, that said Nonna Murray. Yes. Hilarious. <laughs> anyway. Yes, we've told many anecdotes of our past lives, uh, so feel free if you find something relevant to uh, take the piss out of Sol. One of the anecdotes that's come up a few times is the time that you used some of Calvin's milk and then Calvin got really <laughs> angry and started oh, shouting at Oh, man. I'm, um, I'm forever can your side of that? Can we get your side of the story? Because we've only had Calvin's. <laughs> No, the, the Calvin side is probably the only side there is. I was just a total dick one day, saw he had milk, I didn't have any, used it, put the top back on shit, and caused like a milk flood in his fridge <laughs> that fucked everything else up. There, there's there, there's no two sides to that, it's just... Uh, <laughs> it's good to any, know Have you got any grown. stories making fun of Calvin, you can tell, that um, we might have missed? Uh, I, I just remember being in his room... And forcing him to watch things like One Man, One Jar and stuff like oh, that. God. <gasps> oh, you, oh my and God. Like, I've actually got... I'll actually be able to dig up the audio of him watching those. How, how long is this one? Not very. Uh, oh, oh, my God. Yeah, it's like, oh, my God. Hey, Calvin, what are you up to? Oh, my God, that blood. Oh, my God, he's into his blood. Why is he that fucking human? Oh, shit. How did he get to do that? Has he put dog treats on a back? to us all. <laughs> um, okay. So, Tarantino. Obviously, we're doing a three-part series here. We, we spoke uh, last week about uh, the first three films that Tarantino directed. So, just to get us started, Connor, why don't you let us know quickly, uh, in brief, what you think of Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown. Okay, Reservoir Dogs, I think it is masterful. I think it's prob- probably one of the best film debuts of all time, really. I think so, yeah. Uh, I think Pulp Fiction's a work of genius. Jackie Brown, I I haven't seen that in a long, long time. I just always remember really liking it, thinking it's a very great film overall, but uh, maybe not quite the same levels of genius, but nothing really to criticize either. Uh, and and then just Mr. Tarantino himself, do you, do you have any sort of broad stroke opinions on him <laughs> uh, as a filmmaker, as a, as a persona, or... Um, in broad strokes, I think he is capable of like genius material. He's a bit ex- extreme, no, not not the extreme. He's, he's kind of off the hinges a little bit, not quite stable. And <laughs> but but I think that's very necessary. You need that kind of insane, unhinged creativity to make the kind of work that 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 genius requires. So would I be able to stand him for more than half an hour talking to him? Probably not. But, you know, like, that's not an insult. I just think you need to be on his level kind of all the time. Yeah, I I think I'd get along with Tarantino really well, like, drinking with him in a bar. And it would go really well for a few hours. We'd been talking about films. And then we would hit a film that he felt so passionately about that I thought was so shit or vice versa. 
that we would just like really clash and it would get like really un it would be really unwarranted how heated it got and we'd like properly fall out because he'd be like <laughs> no the the scene the, the scene from that film's amazing like I, what has happened to my voice like oh Tarant- the, the thing about tarantino he's kind of up here there we go all right so that's sam raimi all right i can't do tarantino this week um <laughs> But I think I think with Tarantino, this impression I get, and it might not be fair, but he likes to talk about films. I don't know if he wants to discuss films with other people uh, and listen to your opinions. He just wants to tell you his own. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that's the impression that he kind of... Yeah. Um, so we split the career of uh, Tarantino up into three for this podcast. We did part one last week, his early work, which I think is very distinct from what followed. Uh and yeah, the kind of awkward middle period, I suppose, is what we're doing this week. Starting with Kill Bill, it was very much one of those films I caught on television, on Film 4, things like that. And I don't, I don't know, I, I think I always sort of enjoyed it, but it, it was very much uh, the start of me falling out of love with Quentin Tarantino. And I think that was true for a lot of people. I think a lot of people really started to get Tarantino fatigue kind of around this point in his career. I don't know how fair on him that is how this definitely feels like tarantino doing exactly what he wants to do Mm. it was by far the biggest budget stuff he'd made at the point that he did it as well wasn't it it certainly looks like Mm -hmm. it i haven't actually looked that up maybe self-indulgent is the word i'm looking for yeah yeah but it was it was in a way that he'd never really made a film before i i've always spoken about tarantino with people as someone who kind of alternates between making quote-unquote real films and sort of weird borderline spoof movies that are just him trying to replicate things he's already seen and they're practically comedies and I think up until now he'd only made real films and I think this was the start of his almost spoof period and um and he he still kind of does a lot of that stuff He, he kind of alternates back and forth but I think what really surprised me about Kill Bill when I finally did set, settle down and watch it was how how close to something like Hot Fuzz it was to me as a kid. I, I well not a kid, but you know I I I kind of thought it was going to be a really serious film, and then I watched it, and it's like, oh no, that that is a joke for people who've seen this old kung fu movie. If you've seen it, that is you know, and obviously there's loads of references and things, but there's yeah parody. But is it a parody though, or is it just a ripoff? It's, it's a mimic, it's not, no? Is it satirizing it or is it just mimicking it? Yeah. Well, this is I well, I think it's done intentionally with a sense of humor about the fact that they're doing it because it's got it's got intentionally bad camera work. It's got intentionally degraded footage. I don't know if that's parody though because it is yeah, like Connor says, it's it's mimicking it. To kind of bring it back a little bit to to what you said earlier. You said about um it's like a real movie. There's like real movies he makes and then kind of more like on the edge ones, right? Yeah. 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 Like, um, I think there's a quote, not too sure if it's 100%, but I think he's quoted as saying he makes two types of films. There's ones that are like really real and like really movies. And then there's like movie movies. Just last week we, we were talking about the, uh, the Tarantino shared universe thing he's got going where one character will pop up in another film or a, a, a character will be related to another one. And, I know he refers to the two universes because he's got a 
what he calls the realer than real universe. That's and, it. Yeah, that's it. That's what I mean. I think the movie universe. One, one of them's the the sort of quote unquote real one. One of them's the sort of film within the film universe that he has going. But then when you actually look at the films that respond like correspond to each one, it doesn't make sense. I think. But then I do think Kill Bill is part of that uh, not real universe that he does. So yeah, I think it was the start of that. Yeah, he says Kill Bill was like a a film that his characters in the real universe would watch. Yeah, that's but, it. But, yeah. but then he says that Death Proof is set in the real universe, which makes no sense at exactly. all whatsoever. <laughs> exactly. That, that's exactly yeah. what Saul said last week. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so Kill Bill, we, we should probably talk about the production of it. Kill Bill was shot as one huge film. It, it was intended to be this... I mean, it was intended to be Tarantino just kind of going for broke, making his the film he'd always wanted to make, his genre homage to the revenge movie. Um, it's very much the start of him really getting into making revenge movies as well, which is, I mean, it's a theme he's pretty much never stopped working with, but uh, I think this is the most overt example of it. But yeah, it was meant to be this huge, sprawling, three-and-a-half-hour, four-hour epic of a, a film with an intermission and all that sort of stuff. And Mr. Harvey Weinstein, everyone's favourite, at some point basically said, and let's chop it in <laughs> half. And he yeah. agreed, surprisingly, because Tarantino seems like someone who'd really stick to his guns on that sort of stuff. Uh, he agreed to chop it in half. Uh, and the end result was we we had something that's far more prevalent these days with uh, the likes of Harry Potter and Twilight and things, just, you know, half a book for a film and then the second half is the next film. Um, but yeah, you just kind of got this story cut in half. I mean, without wanting to go into too much detail, because I'll talk about this later on, I think it really does this film a disservice that it isn't one big epic, honestly. there There is a completed cut of this film that exists, and was meant to be being released on home media years ago, but it never came out. There have been like screenings at the odd um, select cinema and festival of the the proper full cut of the film. And by all accounts, it's a very subtle difference, uh, but by all accounts, it makes a world of difference to the film to see it as a coherent whole. And, and so I wanted to kind of replicate that as much as I could. And so I... I waited until I had a day and I was in the mood to really dig into some Tarantino and just endure four hours of it <laughs> and watch them back to back and and I but I don't know. My note is revenge is a dish best served cold, old Klingon proverb, what the fuck is wrong with Tarantino? <laughs> <laughs> now this is actually this is one of the few uh distinctive differences between the individual cut of the film and the coherent uh, I think it's called The Whole Bloody Affair when it's been screened as one big thing. That's right. So at the start of The Whole Bloody Affair, there isn't a Klingon quote. It's a dedication to Kinji Fukusaku, who is a, a filmmaker who obviously you know made a lot of films that heavily inspired Tarantino, I suppose. I think he made Battle Royale, I think. Oh, really? Is that him? Right off the bat, that, that sets a different, very different tone for the film. Um, yeah. I think it, it it's starting as you know, ooh, revenge, ooh, look at me, I'm Tarantino, I'm weird. That's what you get from a Klingon proverb. <laughs> a dedication to a filmmaker makes you sit up and go, ah, this is a film that's a love letter to cinema, and therefore I'm going to read it in a very different light. So right off the bat, that's one of the little differences that I think. 
makes the full the whole bloody affair sound better to me. Anyway, I've made a note that I love the opening credits. This is something Tarantino's very good at, and I, I love it when he does it. He picks a brilliant song, and then he just leaves you to kind of sit in it and get ready for the film. There's just something about how he formats them, and, and he, like in this film, he numbers the the five cast members she has to kill and guest starring bits and so on. It's just mm-hmm. it's unusually interesting to say it's just a list of names. Most films that just treat it as a formality. I like that Tarantino embraces the theatricality of what he's doing. And, and yeah, when you talk about the the opening, like uh, I think the opening shot of the bride, as she's known at the time, getting shot point blank in the head, is up there again with some of the most shocking things I've ever seen. The opening shot brings me back to the kind of question of Quentin Tarantino and violence and the two types of violence that he kind of has. Ooh, that's a good point, actually. We we spoke last week about how he's known as a violent filmmaker, but his films aren't really that violent for the most part. There's often one or two... Well, and we were talking about specifically Reservoir Dogs, we didn't think was as violent as and Pulp Fiction says. Pulp Fiction has its moments. But it's not... Yeah, Pulp Fiction isn't... But it's never... It's mm. never over. It never comes at a place where it isn't directly required by the story. It's never gratuitous, really. And Kill Bill is not that. Kill Bill is extremely violent and revels in its violence and is is playful with how violent it is. It, it's it's akin to a like a splatter film, frankly, at times. Um, it's the first time I'd say Tarantino's really lived up to his reputation for violence, basically. Yeah. Um, I think the violence in this film is so cartoony and unrealistic. The, the big scene at the end of part one uh, is obviously the one that comes to mind more than any, where she's chopping off limbs and then they're just, you know, it's just absolute geysers of, of blood, like gushing out of limbs chopped off. And it's. You know, I, I think they had condoms full of blood mm-hmm. being popped to make it happen on set. It's that sort of just just absurd amounts of blood. But again, it's 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 such heightened reality that it's difficult to kind of look at it like, ooh. Well, yeah, it's 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 taken to such extremes that it's obviously what that adds. I'm not sure. I think what it adds is that the bride is your protagonist and you're being asked to sympathize and empathize with her and she's just killing people and if it was a stark realistic portrayal of that it would be almost impossible to really be on her side but because it's such heightened clearly fake violence it, you can kind of switch your brain off and go with it yeah it makes her more like a comic book hero than a sadistic mass murderer yeah yeah Almost all of my notes here at the start are just saying that this is a comedy and this is funny. I've got the bit where her eyes uh, flash at the start, flash red and that (laughs) noise starts playing. Or the the ludicrousness of the fight scene. The the fact that her name's being bleeped out the first few times she says it. Yeah, that annoyed me. That, yeah, annoys me as well. I don't like, get that. Can you can you explain that to me? Because well, I don't it's, really understand what the point of that well, is. Well, it's meant to be an enigma. Who is she? You don't know. We're going to refer to her as the bride until we get later on. The thing is, when you learn when you learn that she's called, it doesn't. It's not a reveal. It's like yeah. Oh, that's her well, name. Yeah, exactly. A name it's like we if don't you found know out, who she is, so a name doesn't you, mean anything. Yeah, and it, it it's difficult to take it as anything other than a weird joke, like how you never find out Mrs. Doyle's name and Father Ted. Do you know a Mrs. Doyle? First name, Mrs. 
style. <laughs> uh, do I know uh, Mrs. Doyle? And it just feels very... And, and this is a good example of perhaps why I don't like Kill Bill very much. It, it just feels like things for no purpose. Style I, over I mean, substance. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that here, that specific instance. I, I can't really stand behind it. I think it's a very messy detail. I think Tarantino is very guilty, and it's certainly something that's more prevalent with Kill Bill onwards. Um, even with some of his later films that we'll get into that I absolutely adore, there's always one or two instances of little self-indulgent, weird elements he adds in where you just think, oh, what was that, Tarantino? What are you doing? Mm. But then I think I think you've got to give him the room to play with those because, you know, I, I love some of his later films and I think they're so much fun and so great because he's willing to, to do weird little things like that that wouldn't mm. um, come into play. And it, I guess he's just got a hit ratio that, mo- you know, for the most part works for me. Because it's bleeped out... And you, but you can see that it, it, it looks like they're saying bitch tits. Um, so, so that's what yeah. I thought the name was. I can imagine it's something that he got really enthusiastic about. It's like whenever he's talking to his friends, he's like, hey, hey guys, I, I got this, the, the character, the bride. Me and Uma Thurman, we made up this character called the bride. And, and you're, you're not going to know her name. You're not going to know her name. Whenever, whenever someone says her name, it's going to be, it's going to be her name. <laughs> that's like, that's a, that's a verbatim quote. <laughs> See, a lot of my notes here relate to Calvin because he was still on the show when I watched him. Uh, <laughs> I've made the note that Daryl Hannah with the eye patch uh, as a nurse will, without question, be Calvin's favourite part of the film. <laughs> yeah. My, so, so at the start, um, we see her get shot in the face, basically, and then she wakes up in uh, um, from a coma in hospital. Mm-hmm. And there are these guys who have this seedy thing going where they like sleep with coma patients and so on. Uh, and basically, she kills them and gets away. So she kills this guy by biting his tongue off. Is that what happens at the start? Yeah, or his lip or something. I mean, there's very big uh, blood flow into your tongue, so maybe that's enough. <laughs> yeah, it would take a while to die from that. Logic, logic, Thank logic. I mean, do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about the reality of how comas work? Because oh man, yeah, yeah I mean. Uh... <laughs> I mean, you've got to kind of go into this film with a uh, yeah no, a know, sense yeah. of film reality, and but a very yeah very strong one, which yeah. I can't say particularly chimes with me. But I'm kind of going in with it with that idea yeah. in mind, so it's like okay, that's it's fine. it's the least incongruous um, extended shot of a woman's feet in any of his films. It's the most justified <laughs> by the plot. I'll give him that. <laughs> Up until this point, Tarantino has made wordy, talky talky films. This is the first time he's stepped up to do action and give him his credit, like, these scenes are choreographed and shot so well. It, it's very mm-hmm. rare that I can kind of sit down and just watch, like, a fight scene and be completely captivated and engaged by it without tuning out very quickly. It has to be really well put together, really inventive, yeah. And I think these films are a fantastic job of that. I think the way everything's shot and put together is brilliant and Tarantino completely and utterly rises to to directing something arguably a bit more ambitious um, from a directorial standpoint. And I think these films, regardless of what you think of them, I think he grows a lot as a filmmaker before and after Kill Bill. Yeah, well, he, that's, that was his objective with Kill Bill. His objective wasn't to kind of make another Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction or Jackie Bryan. It was to 
deliberately threw, as he said, threw his hat into the ring as one of the all-time greatest action directors as well. Had Tarantino gone on to make more action films, I think he would be held up as one of the all-time great action yeah. directors. I think I agree. It's well put together. It's well shot and everything. But I still found it incredibly boring when there's just a load of people fighting. And it is, it's definitely a personal taste thing. I, I've never found that sort of thing interesting. But this didn't have enough to keep me there. Didn't hold me in. This is not like Kung Fu Hustle, is it? It's not that It's not far off it. I honestly... No. I, I, it's not nearly as far... Yeah, but I mean, Kung Fu Hustle is just fun and silly, whereas this... Exactly. That's, that's all right. That's not But so this bad. constantly throws new ideas at you that, you know, she, there's the bit where the sword gets stuck in the wall and she uses it as a springboard to jump up. Things like that are keeping it constantly fresh and engaging. It isn't just half an hour of her whacking a sword against other swords. It's Yeah, yeah, I'll grant you that. But I also like reality, so I'm not Oh wait a minute, I've just thought of a I've just thought of a bit that was like ridiculous uh, and presume was a joke. When she wakes up from the coma she looks at her hands and then she goes, Four years because she's apparently read in her hands that She's been unconscious for four years. Uh, yeah, I, I don't see a problem with it, though. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, why, how does she know how long she's been asleep for? Because I would take it as she's this, like, ultimate warrior lady. She's so in tune with her body and senses, she can look at her hands and know. Well, see, I took it as that as well, and it made me hate the film. <laughs> 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 I think stuff like that works better after you've seen her go and train with the... Um, sort of Mm. almost mythical old man atop the mountain and so on. That's the sort of nonsense that makes sense in the context of that, I think. And that's another reason why I think this works better as a whole rather than a separate part one, part two. Like, seeing volume two really does, I don't not explain or make volume one more... It together. It does, does. yeah. If you're looking at volume one, like when Alan said that she's a kind of, um, maybe not as developed or... Mm kind of like a one-dimensional thing, I took issue with that. Then yeah. I realized that I only took issue with it because of what is explained in Volume 2, not through Volume 1 itself. Yeah, Exactly. Like I, I really think, after kind of properly digging into this and analyzing it on a deeper level for this podcast, I really think that these two films as they stand are kind of messy, self-indulgent, and they are less than the sum of their parts. But I truly, reading into the whole bloody affair, looking at how it would work as one, having never seen the whole bloody affair, I, I completely believe that it is greater than the sum of its parts and everything works a bit better because it just, from the sound of it, sounds like it would and does. But again, I'll, I'll talk about that in a bit more detail later. Um, do you want to talk about the anime bit? or I found the Oren story, that, that whole kind of bit, much more engaging. Once we got into that, when it came to the big melee fight scene with the crazy 88s, I'm not that bothered about that. It was just like, okay, get on with it. But in terms of that whole story, that the whole way it was set up, the anime bit, I, I was more engaged. I enjoyed mm. it, and I was on board with that. What did you think of Lucy Liu in the casting? She's um, fine. I'm alright with Lucy Liu. I've got no problem yeah. with it particularly. Seen I just think it's absolutely perfect. Like in terms of casting for that role, it's like. Yeah, she does it well. It certainly, when it came out, was pretty infamous that Tarantino put this big anime flashback sequence in the film, and I think a lot of people were pulling it out as, look how weird and self-indulgent he's become. Honestly, watching it here, I think it works really well. I I think it it separates her backstory from the brides. Um, It kind Mm -hmm. of informs you, right, this is someone else's story now. Um... 
you know, there's an argument of weird cultural appropriation and fetishization going on, but again, this is, I think these really are a love letter to a certain type of genre pulpy cinema, and that's just part of that. And that's the thing, it's, it should be really self-indulgent and jarring, but the way it's used, I think it's quite organic and sincere. Um, mm. And as someone who's been complaining about self-indulgence, I, I find it perfectly fine and very well done and a great way to to tell the story. I, I think one of the reasons it works so well is that um, it, it, it isn't just superficially mm. using the yeah. medium and the genre, it, it makes great use of the tropes yeah. of the genre, the um, things you can do with animation that you couldn't do in live action. But <laughs> my my next note here actually is that um, this is the film equivalent of a prog rock album or one of those <laughs> Beatles albums after they went to India and yeah. they were just like, let's just throw everything in here. It's a sitar, whack a theremin in there. Let's just get a bit of everything. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I see. I, I fucking love those Japanese guys in that restaurant the guy who makes a sword can i brag at this point and say that i've been to okinawa as well <laughs> yes of course yeah. several times <laughs> lovely place right. <laughs> yeah me, me and my girlfriend we uh, we had sushi Br- bragging away like hell here girlfriend <laughs> <laughs> i mean what what is the plot of the film we've not even covered that yet <laughs> so we she she's like some people try to kill her and they massacre a load of people very close to her so she, at her wedding. So years later, and, she's getting uh, revenge. That's it, basically. And it's her just going through a list of the assassins that were sent to get her, killing them one by one. She kills one at the very start. Um, then she goes to get a sword. Although, although that is in reverse order, because Oren is the first. And then she goes to... Then it's Oren. And then there's a big like end of film boss fight where she just sends in like thousands of henchmen to kill first and it's just a huge fight and then she kills her and that's the end yes and normally we've spoken on this podcast before about my my how much i despise it when films don't end Mm -hmm. and they expect you to come back for the next one and it's like right time up come back next time it i i can't really defend it here either yeah good because i was gonna (laughs) slap you down if you did (laughs) <laughs> but that's not really Tarantino's choice, was it? Well... He agreed, but it wasn't his original idea. Yeah, yeah. I I really I really do like this film a lot, and that ending costs it, like, at least one, possibly more points than one out of ten. Yeah, same for like me. Like, I am... Yeah. I, when, I, when I give my final rating, bear in mind that I have, like, subtracted at least one point for that ending, because it, it's just weak, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... Um, but they, but what they do here is they try to uh, hook you in and end on a bit of a cliffhanger yeah. by revealing that dun dun dun, uh, the daughter of hers that was believed to be dead at the end of the, uh, sorry, the, the start of the film is still alive. Well, it's never mentioned, but she's pregnant, and when so when she's shot in the head, we, it's never actually mentioned. I guess we assume that the baby was never born or whatever, but. I hated it. I hated that moment where he said, does she know about her daughter or whatever the quote was. Can I tell you, Alan, this is the biggest reason why apparently uh, the whole bloody affair... Is better. Well, I, I made this note. I, 
I would. It was so much better if we get to that last scene and we suddenly find the daughter there. That would be such a. That's how the film was made. If you didn't originally. know it, yeah. Obviously, yeah. obviously, it is for her, and we should be experiencing it with her. Yeah. And that ruins it completely. Very subtle, but the biggest difference is that exactly. You do not find out that the daughter's alive until you get there at the end. That gut punch plays like a gut punch, and that has the impact of making the films subtext and meaning have value because without that playing that way it doesn't really mean anything as a film yeah. but i think we'll probably have to get to that at the end of talking about part two yeah and it does um, completely uh, ruin that effect and really makes a yeah it makes that second film uh, significantly lesser because you know it because you yeah. know what's going on yeah because that would have been such a great impact at the end uh, okay so the second film starts with a very poor opening scene that they've just tacked on to kind of catch up the story. How shit is that? <laughs> My note was um, I just don't think Uma Thurman can sell it, but then do you know do you know all the behind the scenes stuff with this? But I presume this was filmed much later when they decided to break into I two so. and they just put her on a car and, and back screen and... Uh, well, what's the opening again? Is it her explaining what yeah, happened? It's her in a car, she's... talking directly to camera, going, let me tell you what happened in the last film. And she says, I am going to kill Bill. <laughs> and it's just, it's it's painfully delivered. It, it's, I mean, it's not particularly well written either. It's just so... Tacked on. Ugh, it, it, yeah, it's, it's horrible. In the wake of the Me Too scandal, this all came out. Basically, the re- Uma Thurman and Tarantino were like, practically like creative best buds for a few years and Kill Bill kind of put an end to that because um, she had a very bad experience filming that scene she didn't feel comfortable driving the car fast enough Tarantino was insistent she drive the car fast so that her hair get whipped up um, for the shot and she didn't feel comfortable and he was like ah, c- come on it's fine it's, it's a straight road you can do it it's fine and convinced her to and then she lost control of the car had a, a pretty nasty crash I think she lost some feeling in her hand or something like that. Like, it, you know, it's pretty bad. And the two didn't speak for ages. And the Weinstein company tried to get her to sign stuff saying she'd never talk about it and all this sort of stuff. And it, it just doesn't sound very pleasant. In Tarantino's defense, because I've had this conversation with people where they say, oh, he's an absolute dickhead Tarantino. How dare he do that to Uma Thurman? In his defense, he's the director and he's trying to get the best shot he possibly can. And there should be someone on set who then comes in and says, no, I'm sorry that we can't do that. It's not safe. There should have been a producer on set. Well, there would who... be, there would definitely be uh, a, a chief stunt guy. Uh, and if you're, if you've got an actor driving a car, that's a, that's a stunt. Yeah. You know, if they're good, if they're driving without their eyes on the road, then yeah, that's going to be. There should have been several people on set who, and there probably were, whose job it is to basically say, we can't do that this way, it's not safe. If you're insistent in getting this shot, we'll find another way. We'll go and buy a big fan to stick on the front of the well, car. Well, that's it. I mean, I, I, looking at that shot, I, it, had not, it had not occurred to me that it was a real road. It looked like a back projection. But it looked like that because she's she's staring into camera and not looking where she's driving, so it looks like fake driving. Sorry, the shot in question, excuse me, the shot in question is from behind him with Thurman. You oh, can only it? see the back of her head, yeah. It's not that shot where she's talking to the camera. In that case, there's no excuse for how shit this is. Unless she'd fallen out with him and she just didn't want to be involved with uh, the production anymore, like, and that's why. Like Harrison Ford. <laughs> uh, my next note is... Oh my god, uh, Bill has a dumb lisp. Is that how David Carradine speaks? <laughs> Does he? I didn't even notice that. 
he has a lisp. He kind of talks. He kind of talks like Sylvester a bit. Like the, it's that kind Does of. He? I'll tell you what, Bride. I want to tell you. I've got your daughter, but she's fine. <laughs> it's oh, it's so it's so distracting throughout this film. Head priest of the White Lotus Clan, Pai Mei, was walking down a road, and contemplating whatever it is that a man of Pai Mei's infinite powers would contemplate. Which is another way of saying who knows. I I found his character extremely irritating. Um, I put at one point I put a note. This Bill's a right fucking boring cunt to say he's like a leader of a cult kind of thing, and all these people look up to him, and he's supposed to be like really charismatic. He's extremely boring. Mm. Everything he says is deliberately slow and boring, and that's a deliberate character thing. That's obviously what the director and actor are doing. This is the character that's clearly written as a Tarantino mouthpiece. Yeah, I don't know. I've, I haven't really got many notes about the second film, well, we, weirdly. The first major scene, I think, is uh, we actually see what happened at the wedding where they all get killed. We see more story yes, there. Yes, true. Bill turns yeah. up. Yeah. Yep. Um, the, the wedding, it, like, it brings up the question of Quentin Tarantino violence choices as well. Because for me, what happens in that wedding is arguably the most violent thing that happens in the film. It is, a, yeah. it's probably the most ghastly thing, because it yeah. is a deliberate murder of someone's former lover, mm-hmm. her unborn child. Yeah, for pure jealousy, just childish jealousy. You, you know about their, it's personal. Yeah. yeah, and and it happens entirely off camera. And they're basically defenseless as well. Yeah, that's yeah. it. The bride's yeah. going around killing people that are, you know, either attacking her or, you know, she may be inciting them, but... They are prepared to but fight. But they know it's coming. They've had time to prepare. They've got a weapon. Whereas in this case, it's like just a massacre. Yeah. Plus, it's not it's not just killing her. It's like killing all these other strangers who just happen to be in the wrong place yeah. at the wrong time. It is brutal. Right. And uh, Okay, well, well, we'll come to this later. It's, Bill sort of tries to justify it. And I think it's well done at the end where he kind of... He, he tries to justify it to her in an emotional level. And she's like... That's fucking bullshit, <laughs> and, and I think it's it is because it needs to. His justification is kind of I don't have any justification. Yeah. It's like Connor at the start when he was saying he doesn't have any excuses. For <laughs> yeah. General perception is that the second film is the weaker entry. Uh, it's because it's a lot more talky and less action focused. Oh, think. really? So it, it's less because I well that would suggest i'd like it more and i didn't <laughs> yeah yeah maybe it's a bit more talky isn't it but when then this whole the next bit is the pi may bit where she goes and we flash back to where she goes and learns how to be a, a grasshopper and it, it goes like full-on kung fu we're gonna quickly zoom into this guy's face kind of filming yeah uh and that was very very boring to me i think that i i do really enjoy that scene i really enjoy that element of the backstory I really like it as part of this story overall. I do think tonally it's completely out of place within the film. Uh, certainly the second one. And I think I think maybe there's some something that could have been done in the edit. It, it just feels like a bit, almost like a tangent. It feels like it would be better if it was broken up a bit. Or if it was worked into part one somewhere. Or mm. I don't know, something about the way it's just dropped in at the start of the second film here. It's just very jarring to me and it doesn't work as well as it should uh, uh, the setup before we go into this flashback with the whole she's uh, becoming a kung fu guy is michael madsen yeah. michael madsen's character 
I quite like that they make it a little bit different because Vanita Green, we don't really get anything from her until, you know, we just go straight in. We get a lot of backstory for Oren. Daryl Hannah's character is like really hates her. And so there's much more combative. And then Michael Madsen's very much like, do you know what? She deserves to come and try and kill us. I'm, see, I'm, I'm going to defend myself, but I think she deserves a fair crack at me. <laughs> and I like that. Just gives it a sort of different bit of personality. Yeah, Michael Madsen, he does what he does, doesn't he? So then, yeah, so then she is buried alive. Um because he wants her to suffer or whatever and she has to use her special kung fu tra- training to to um smash through six feet of dirt so um l driver kills bud yeah and then the bride comes back and has the uh has the confrontation with l driver and the idea with l driver is that she's jealous as well with because of through bill do you know what i mean like there's that seems to be the the jealous streak uh, towards the bride so yeah, I mean the the big the main part of the film then is what follows really. It's it's the confrontation with Bill and it's very talky and she learns that her kid's still alive. The impression I get whenever I meet him is that he is beyond despicable because he is using their daughter as leverage. Yeah. Uh, against Uma Thurman. Like that's a despicable thing to do. But I like that from a character point of view because he's supposed to be despicable and be- and 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 obviously that that is what Sylvester the cat is known for as well is is what is and isn't despicable. No, that's Daffy the Duck, isn't it? Fuck, shit, sucker and succotash. Daffy is, the Duck. Is, I was gonna that was gonna be really good. I was gonna do the David Carradine impression and be like, "You're despicable," and then ah, uh, fucked it up. <laughs> anyway, so we we touched on this earlier, but I don't like what happens to when she finds out she's got this daughter, it's like, the fact that it, it, I don't know how to explain this. Her reaction feels very genuine. Yeah, I I like it because of that. (laughs) It does feel very genuine. It's very muted. And like, she's taking time to process it and kind of reacting as much as, like as little as she can but as much as she has to so that she can process it at the same time. I actually really like how it's handled. Maybe it wasn't that. <laughs> maybe it was... No, maybe... Now I'm trying to think out what it was, but it, it, I think it might have been because she... Oh, that was it. Yes, I've got it. Right, I remember which scene it was. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, yeah, it's the scene where we have a flashback and she finds out she's pregnant and someone comes to kill her and, and all that bit, right? Yeah. That's the bit I hated. The fact that when she... The, literally the second she finds out that she's pregnant, she transforms her personality and becomes a different person. And I, that just made me feel gross. And uh, like, I, I, I didn't like that. But people do that. I, I know people change when they have kids. And I'm sure if you become pregnant, it's like, but it's literally as she pisses on a stick and it turns blue, it changes her personality. And I, I feel like it needs more time to settle in. <laughs> I don't think it does change her personality. I think the implication is that's the person she was, but, you know, now she's... These things have always meant stuff to her, and it's just happening now, you know? It, I, yeah, we we didn't know the bride from before, from years ago. We know her just within the context yeah. of these films. And and that's kind of the earliest point in her life. Well, the only one before that is where she's training with Palme. I disagree, basically. I think it works fine. I, I think the... Uh, I, I respectfully disagree as well, Alan. <laughs> okay, <yeah. laughs> 
fine. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things I like is that, sorry, it also plays up to this kind of honor code of assassins that one of you guys mentioned earlier, too. It's like, like not only is there this kind of like, you know, the development for the for the bride, but also because this uh, assassin sent to kill her also willfully says, oh, wow, holy shit, you know, like you're, you're pregnant. I'm going to, you know, congratulations. Bye bye. I'm a surgeon yeah. with this shotgun. Bye bye. And, um, and you know, that, that's the kind of honor that's alluded to in the general universe that they exist in, too. It's nice. That I mean, that would have really annoyed me if it wasn't handled as well as it is in that scene. I think the fact that that, that assassin is clearly very conflicted and just doesn't really know what to do. And it's kind of played jokingly in a way. Yeah, you get you get the impression she might go back in half an hour, having changed her mind, and try and kill her again. Like I think I think it's played really well. I think if she had just been like, oh, you are a mother now, then I will leave you alone and like turned around and walked away, then it, yeah, that would be bullshit. But I like how it's done. I think it's done really well. Any Anything else to say about these films? Were you guys scared shitless during the coffin burial? <laughs> no. Mm, Is that no, terrified me? <laughs> I've seen other films do it in a more unpleasant way. The only thing I have to compare it to is Buried with Ryan Reynolds, but I thoroughly enjoyed that because I had a huge crush on Scarlett Johansson at the time. So I enjoyed watching him slowly die. <laughs> <laughs> but but that said, I do I do really like Ryan Reynolds. But uh, at the time, he was a rival, so you know. How's it going with Scully Hansen? Anyway, yeah. So the whole bloody affair. The other differences are um, the the anime sequence is extended. Apparently, it's a bit longer. There's more violence reinstated. Uh, it doesn't, for example, go black and white at the end of the first film. It just stays in color. Is there a good reason for why that happens? I'm 90% sure it was to get them an the R rating thing. instead of an NC-17. Yeah, yeah it was for the censorship. The are funny about seeing the colour of blood. Um, I, I kind of like that because it just it shows up the censorship to how ridiculous it is. Yeah. It's like, you can show people being brutally murdered, but as long as it's not red... <laughs> So it's like, yeah, well, that's fine. why so much of the blood is like green and black in the Evil Dead movies. The exact same reason. Um, I, I do love the way it cuts back to color, and then the water's just pure red as well. I, I really like that in that bit. There's obviously no cliffhanger ending, though there is an intermission uh, between parts one and two. Obviously, all the credits and titles at the end of one and the start of two are gone. And then the other things I mentioned. So it's almost exactly the same as if you just watch the films back to back. Um, it's roughly the same experience, but I do think they work a hell of a lot better as one big whole. <laughs> That's the worst bit. Plus, the opening sequence of the second film that obviously has been put in there to catch up is awful. Yeah. So, I mean, with that in mind, should we rate them? Okay. Based on what I've heard and what I'm, if I were to rate this as one thing, I think it would be a nine out of ten from me. Um, but it isn't. It's two separate films, and I will give them both a very generous 8 out of 10. Okay. Well, I definitely dropped points on them because of the the fact that they're two films as well. I gave them a, a 6 and a 5. Ooh. But yeah, I definitely think if I... As a, as, a, as a whole single film, it would probably be more likely to be a 6 than a 5 of that, of that nature, but yeah. Um... Uh, I would give them both 8 out of 10 each, but for two different reasons each. I'd give the first one 8 out of 10 just as a kind of fantastic all-round kind of kung fu action romp. And I'd give the second one an 8 out of 10 uh, for the 
for the characterization and the dramatization and the level of depth and overall sincerity that it achieves as well. Because I think it gives the bride a really more human and vulnerable uh, aspect while also elevating, simultaneously elevating her to superhuman status as well. And it does that very well. So yeah, after that was uh, Grindhouse, which is, I mean, to date, it, it remains one of the most ambitious, strange ideas for a film that I still can't really believe got made. Money. Yeah. <laughs> that got funded, yeah. Because the fact that someone, the fact that an artistic director wants to do that, yeah. I can believe. The fact that they convinced uh, people with money to do it yeah. is, a, is a different matter. Because yeah. it flopped hard on its ass financially. <laughs> and it's not remotely surprising because, yeah, of course it's going to confuse your average film goer. And of course the average film goer doesn't want to go and sit through a like three and a half hour film that doesn't because yeah uh for anyone who doesn't know i think a lot of people are more familiar with death proof uh which was tarantino's half of grindhouse but this was there was a film grindhouse it was tarantino and robert rodriguez essentially teaming up to make well i mean it is an anthology b-movie double bill thing yeah and they both made a film a full-length feature i mean but basically flat out parodies of you know, genre film, grindhouse cinema, basically. So it used to go to these old, you know, cinemas and they just show crappy old movies, old kung fu movies, old horror movies, old, you know, pulpy cinema. And this was their way of harking back to the experience they both had of going to these films and taking them in. There's a, you know, you get double bills and stuff like that. And so they, yeah, they both made a full length kind of homage to crappy old cinema um, and put it out as one film in the cinema with a load of little extra bits and bobs heightening the experience and um, I think that's I, that, I was so excited for this film. I was so excited. I think it's I think it's admirable from a sort of yeah. artistic point of view. I think it's a nice yeah cool thing. Yeah. The fact that they're kind of unwatchable is a shame, really, isn't it? <laughs> well, I was going to say whether or not it worked, we'll get into it in a minute. But I mean, for it didn't. It was to the point that America's pretty much the only country that got this film released um, as a full thing. It, it it did so badly that almost every other country had it the release pulled, and then it was rejigged, and then we all got separate cuts of the individual two films released, uh, which. Now I didn't. I, I've I've watched these films before. I didn't rewatch Planet Terror for this because I just couldn't be bothered. Oh, I did. Um, and I'm sure we'll do a Rodriguez well, thing at some point. This I really so I, like. I really fucking dug into this. I, I was so into going through all these Tarantino films. I basically this came out. I was so furious that they cut the film in half when it came out over here. I refused to go and watch it. I managed to get hold of a dodgy pirate cam recorded. Um, version of Grindhouse to watch online back on, you know, 2007 internet, so not very good quality. Yeah. So I endured a really shit quality, but which is probably how Tarantino would love to <laughs> see the film. Like, oh, it's the experience. And so I, re- just, I remember being really disappointed and furious with it, and I remember 
hating Death Proof so much when I got to it. That I, and, but I obviously wasn't <laughs> watching it in the best context and the best way. But this is this is a good that's a good analogy because in twenty years, if you made a film that looked like you've just downloaded it from the yeah. internet in two thousand seven and put it in the cinemas and go, oh yeah, I remember I used to watch films like this all the time when I was like fifteen, um, then. That's what Tarantino is doing. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you remember we shit films we used to watch that were shit? Let's make one of them and make it look shit. Well, that's, you know, that's Star Wars, isn't it? George Lucas was like, remember those old serials? Hey, here's Star Wars. I mean, I think one of the biggest problems it ran into or runs into is that are these homages... Like, at, at what point are you making your... F- at what point, if you make your film intentionally shit, does it just become shit? That's kind of the problem you run into with Grindhouse. Um, Plus, I think there's things in in Death Proof that are shit because of the way Tarantino's writing it. I don't know if that's because I don't. I mean, I don't know enough about shit B movie American films from the seventies to really know. Is a load of shit unrealistic dialogue that drags on for ages? Is that a stock in trade? Yeah, that I, I agree. It's very um, inauthentic. It just seems very Tarantino-y. But um, can we... Have you guys seen Grindhouse? Not the, not the two separate films. Have you seen Grindhouse, the experience as it was meant to be seen? I saw a Grindhouse in preparation for this, yeah. Have you, Alan? Not not all as one go. All right. Well, try to keep up as, as uh, we talk through the Grindhouse version, and then I'll come back to the differences between cuts, I guess. Um, yeah, okay. Because nowadays, I, I advise you just go and find Grindhouse online, because th- this is the version of these films as they were intended to be seen. And what I was saying about Kill Bill before, where Kill Bill is split in half and it's it becomes less of the sum of its parts, when you put these two films together, they become more than the sum of their parts. Um, on their own merits... I mean, I won't spoil it, but I mean, I'm not going to be amazingly positive about them. But the experience of Grindhouse <laughs> as a film is is something, and um, a big part of that is the trailers for coming attractions. There's a whole load of fake trailers by uh, director friends of Tarantino and Rodriguez that were pulled in at the start. Uh, they're the best part of the entire film. Frankly, I would love to see an entire film that's nothing but fake trailers, just 90 minutes of those. <laughs> God. <laughs> what? I think that'd be great. Um, It'll get a bit boring after, like, the first 25 minutes. Well, the, you know, a lot of the trailers could push the believability of how long they are. They do here. The Thanksgiving trailer is a lot longer than a real trailer, isn't it? Thanksgiving trailer is the worst. Fuck. No, it's not. All oh, right, we'll come back in a minute. No. What you want is an anthology film of short films by these directors, and we, we know how that worked out. You've seen Four Rooms. Excellent point. I think it could be done a hell of a lot better if there was some sort of coherent through line, not just Tim Roth's going to gurn his way from one to the next. <laughs> so we have the same logo title card that intros Kill Bill, and then we have the trailer for Machete. Brilliant. Machete. This trailer is... It is fantastic. If the, if all of Grindhouse have been as good as this trailer. I took a vow of peace. And now you want me to help you kill all these men? Yes, bro. I mean, Padre. I'll see what I can do. Please, Father, have mercy. God has mercy. I don't. 
because Robert Rodriguez directed this and presumably wrote it, I don't know. But he'd been working on this character of Machete for ages. Do you know where he first appeared, Alan? Uh, I know, I know. In Danny Trejo's dreams. Spy Kids! I brought you all new gadgets. Check it out. The very latest spy watch. Total communication center right there on your wrist. Cell phone, internet access, satellite TV, you name it. That baby will do everything but tell you what time it is. It doesn't tell time? No. There was so much stuffed into it, there was no more room for the clock. Isn't that fucking bizarre? Danny Trejo (laughs) plays Machete in Spy Kids, and it's just Machete, and technically Grindhouse is a Spy Kids spin-off by all (laughs) metrics you can use to measure these things. It's so weird, that. But yeah, the trailer's brilliant. It's hilarious, it's fun, it's inventive, it's pitch perfect, it's everything Grindhouse was supposed to be. I think we'll have to do the Machete films uh, properly at some point, so I won't go into it here. Because obviously, you know, this was the one that got a spin-off full film version. Um, But it's weird, they only use that one trailer at the start. Yeah. And then we jump into Planet Terror, Robert Rodriguez's film. Now, I mean, if anyone's going to like a kind of shit B-movie zombie film, I guess it's me, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And... and, uh, Lest we forget the very, very high praise I gave to From Dust Till Dawn last week. Yeah. This it's just not that good, is it, Planet Terror? <laughs> no. <laughs> the last time I saw Planet Terror, I was a little bit high, I think, and it probably made it a lot better than what I remember it being. When I saw it in Grindhouse this time, I was kind of underwhelmed. I think, yeah, it's really just... So, so it opens on a woman stripping, and it's not funny or subverting that sort of thing. It's just a woman stripping, and and it's just frankly, it's just boring. Sorry, it's not. It's not just a woman. It's Rosemary Gowan. She's hot as hell. Well, I was about to say, I say this as someone who completely and utterly fell in love with Rose McGowan rewatching this film, because she. <laughs> I never really knew who she was. Uh, I guess because Weinstein blacklisted her because he tried to rape her and she like kicked him in the balls or something, and. Uh, we'll get get to that in a minute because it is actually very specific to this film. But I I never really knew anything about her other than occasionally hearing of her saying stuff about people and being outspoken and just being like, okay, fair enough. And mm. then yeah, she's actually incredibly attractive in this film. Then we got to Death Proof and I was like, oh my god, who's that blonde woman? She's like, I'm I I mean I I hate talking about <laughs> I I feel sexist just going on about it. But, like, <laughs> I was completely and utterly enraptured by her and I looked her up in the credits and it's like oh it's Rose McGowan again okay yeah no I like Rose McGowan then uh didn't realize but anyway um it's hmm, weird because I think on paper I should fancy Rose McGowan more than you I think really I blonde think Rose so. McGowan is so my type of like that's I have a very specific I have like two or three very specific types and Rose McGowan blonde is that second one. She does look a bit like Amanda Seyfried, actually, doesn't she? Like, sort of bulbous eyes, sort of look. That's it, that's it. You, it's the bit. It's the big eyes and a wide mouth. Amanda Seyfried, Rose McGowan, Gillian Jacobs. Do you like a, a young young Betty Davis? Nah. <laughs> anyway, and then one thing I will say about this film is there is some brilliant bad acting in it. Like, Acting bad on purpose is difficult if you can act, and I'm not entirely sure 
if this film just got actors capable of doing bad acting or they just cast actual bad actors. Because <laughs> the guy who owns the club... God damn it, girls. You're going to do that shit? Do it on stage. Smoke That's That is so pitch perfect, this sort of film. Bad acting. It's like It's actually really... I was really impressed with it, and I shouldn't be. My my notes are just kind of me getting less and less into it and talking about how bored I'm getting. Well, Bruce Willis turns up, then zombies show up. Like, about half an hour into it, it takes a while. And then it's just kind of a shit zombie movie. And <sighs> there's some really nice moments in this film. They're just kind of dotted around and never really... We've got Marley Shelton. We should probably mention yeah. her because she that kind of connects the two worlds, doesn't it? The nurse who's um... weirdly, and it doesn't work either. Yeah. <laughs> kind of... uh, and there's a bar. There's a guy who does really good barbecue food. There's a scene where they go in and they think he's been attacked. He's got his intestines everywhere, and then he wakes up and he's like, "Oh, it's just barbecue," and eats. It's a sausage. Uh... <laughs> there's some really great stuff in this film. There's some amazing shots of people lumbering towards them with like. I'm a real sucker for this, actually, in a zombie movie. It's a certain kind of shot where you've just got, like, the placement of zombies getting close to people, but you see them dotted off into the distance, walking slowly. It's, it's done really nicely here. There's a bit where the film begins to massively degrade as they have sex, and I really like that. There's an implication that whoever owns the film reel has been watching this bit far more <laughs> often than the rest of the film. Yeah. And then we get the first missing reel, which... Uh, I absolutely love. For people who haven't seen it, in Grindhouse, um, there's basically a point where the film pretends to break, and then it says, sorry, real missing, and you skip ahead, and it cuts to them like in the thick of it, dealing with stuff. And it's, I think it's such a fantastic, like inventive um, plot device, basically, that pushes the story forward in a way that's very true to the concept of this thing. I think it works wonders in Death Proof, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, I actually think it's done much better in Planet Terror than Death Proof, actually. Really? Well, it, I, th- I think it was kind of written into Planet Terror, wasn't it? That was kind of how the film was crafted, is that right? In Death Proof, it was just a, a pure editing move. It was just, um, how can we get this down to, like, 90 minutes? So just chop this scene out and put that there. Okay. Um, the, the origin behind this as well, this isn't something that happened in old Grindhouse cinemas, uh, which is kind of the idea. It's just that Tarantino owned a film, uh, was screening it, but he was missing one of the reels. Uh, it never came when he bought it or something, but he said he really liked the mystery that it created and how it kind of pushed things forward, how the film kind of worked in spite of it. So, uh, so Tarantino does a bit of acting, in this. Uh, we spoke about this last week. I, I would say this is one of his better roles in terms of getting away with it, perhaps because it's not his film. Um, <laughs> and he basically plays... So, I mean, we're going to have to go into the Harvey Weinstein stuff again here. Uh, do you guys know how that kind of Im- impacted on this film? Well, he raped Rose McGowan, didn't he? Yeah. And she's one of the most outspoken people who was most instrumental in kind of the Me Too movement. Now it's happened. Yeah, part of that was he he blacklisted her from Hollywood to the best of his abilities and said, never hire this woman. She can't be in any Weinstein productions, blah, 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 blah. Uh, she told Robert Rodriguez what happened. He was, you know, outraged, as you would be, and 
basically said, well, look, I'm making this thing with Tarantino that's going to be financed by the Weinsteins, and he can't say shit if I say I want you as my lead, because he'll have to explain why not, and he's not going to do that. So I'm going to write this role for you, specifically, cast you. You'll be paid like by the Weinstein company to be in this film, and we're going to include this like Harvey Weinstein character in it, who you get to shoot in the dick. So that that Tarantino role, the rapist, as he's credited, was uh, according to Robert Rodriguez, um, basically just written to be Harvey Weinstein as a stand-in. You thought it was pretty funny, didn't you? Actually, yes. You gave me some wood. Now I'm gonna give you some fucking wood. Did Tarantino know that? I don't think so. It doesn't come across in his performance. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, then then it just kind of drags on. Then we get to the most iconic element that's... A load of people seem to love this. Um, she loses a leg and then they put a gun on her leg. And to me, that's just a cheap Evil Dead knockoff. It's just the chainsaw on the hand, but that's already been done. But yeah. I don't know. It, it doesn't really work. I think if that was going to be... I think it needed to come earlier if that was going to be a cool thing for the character. One of the big problems I have with this film is that it's so many digital effects um, that are so clearly digital, it just doesn't feel authentic to the time. Like, Tarantino's yeah. half feels very authentic, like, visually at least. Um, but anyway, yeah, I don't really like Planet Terror all that much. Might be a surprise. If anyone was going to love it, it would probably be... Oh, yeah. So my notes are, uh, as much as I said these need to be watched as one whole thing, um, Planet Terror works much better when you watch the individual cut. Um, there's a lot more setup. there's a lot more room to breathe, little scenes that explain characterization that are present. Just things like seeing Josh Brolin and uh, that nurse character at home seeing their domestic life at the start just sets up their dynamic. There's more time setting up her whole thing with injections so it doesn't just come out of nowhere. Um, there's more stuff setting up the barbecue character. Basically, without seeing all the setup, it just feels very random access humour and weird. And I believe this might be wrong, uh, but I'm pretty sure it's shown in a wider aspect ratio when you watch the solo version as well. It definitely plays better, but I, I still think you need to watch it as the Grindhouse experience. It's not like either version's particularly great. And so, yeah, then Planet Terror finishes and we get the fake trailers uh, really are all here, other than Machete. Or, or Hobo with a shotgun, that's not there either, is it? Uh, that was that was never part of the original. Th- that Basically, that trailer... Oh, that's right. That was a competition, wasn't it? Yeah, it won a competition to That's like right. make a fake trailer for Grindhouse, and I think they included it on some showings in like Canada. Um, but I don't think it's kind of yeah, it's not it's original like Grindhouse. Yeah. So what have we got? We got Werewolf Women of the SS by Rob Zombie, the best thing he's ever made, <laughs> featuring Udo Kier, Sherry Moon Zombie, Tom Tolls, Sybil Danning, Bill Mosley. And Nicolas Cage as Fu Manchu. This is my vision! 
Demon of the SS. Featuring Nicolas Cage as Fu Manchu, which is the highlight of the entire film. It's the highlight of <laughs> all of Grindhouse for me. Yeah. That, that <laughs> I, I, actually, no, I, you know what? It's my second favourite thing. Then you, there's an ad for some Tex-Mex food uh, restaurant, which is great. The Acuna Boys. Uh, <laughs> just a still image, I think. Who are the Acuna Boys? They're, they're uh, from Kill Bill. They're the guy's army in Kill Bill too, yeah. Uh, and then for me, the highlight of Grindhouse is Edgar Wright's trailer for Don't. If you are thinking of going into this house, don't. If you are thinking of opening this door, don't. If you are thinking of checking out the basement, don't. Oh my god, like, Edgar Wright, like, pretty much all of these directors have spoken about how they'd be up to making a full-length version of these films. Edgar Wright, I would love to see the full-length version of Don't. I think the joke would be completely gone, but I don't care. It's, um... (laughs) So Werewolf Women of the SS is, like, you know, the old Nazi exploitation monster movie, horror movie nonsense. Then Don't is basically a British film from the 70s horror film... And it's the classic way trailers for these kind of hammer horror films and similar were always cut in a way that would try and hide the fact they were British for American audiences. So you've got Will Arnett doing the narration and just saying, Don't look behind. Don't look in there. Don't look up. Don't look anywhere. Pitch perfect. It's... Honestly, I love it. And the cast assembled for this thing is astounding. I I think Mark Gatiss is in there. You've got Lucy Punch, Nick Frost, Rafe Spall. Just the cream of, like, Edgar Wright's people that he works with. And, of course, the big tagline at the end that it's all leading to is... If you are thinking of seeing this film alone, don't. Anyway, then... There's the trailer for Thanksgiving, which I think's good fun. I think it's better than the trailer for Werewolf Women, personally. This is the only one that's, like, got actual jokes in it, instead of just being kind of... Thanksgiving. You'll come home for the holidays in a body bag this February. Yeah, Thanksgiving's really straightforward. To give them credit, it's really grimy and dirty. Uh, like, the way it's shot, the audio, it's so... It reminds me of stuff like Black Christmas. It feels completely, like, authentic in a way that Werewolf Women of the SS didn't, and Machete didn't. But, um, obviously that's all technical. But this was the one that I think got farthest along on being turned into a spin-off film other than Machete, it still hasn't happened. I doubt it ever will. But it looks funny. It's got some really good jokes in it. With the, the bit where a policeman like sees a puddle of blood on the floor where someone's been killed, and then dips his finger in it, puts it to his tongue, and just goes, "It's blood." It's it's <laughs> hilarious. And frankly, it's a level of comedy that uh, Planet Terror and Death Proof should have had in them if they were going to work, and they don't. Yeah. Then we get into his film, and it opens on just a shot of women's feet. <laughs> Like a Surprise. really long shot. He's in the full-on fetish mode. <laughs> um, you know what I fucking love, though? Um, 
is that for a split second there's a different title and then death proof <laughs> oh, yeah. is like awkwardly superimposed over it. <laughs> yeah. and, again, that's such a nice little detail, so of Grindhouse. Because, uh, you know, that harks back to these Italian films and similar having like a hundred different names when they're distributed um, in English speaking countries and so on. You know, we let sleeping corpses lie is uh, the living dead at the Manchester morgue here. Cause we have, we know what Manchester is. Yeah. <laughs> um, like so. the, the editing of that title is so spot on accurate. And uh, yeah, like yeah. amazing. Like, I just want to like, what, what's, I, the, I what's the fake name that pops up? Uh, Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt, Quentin Tarantino's Thunderbolt. The editing is so good. It just reminds me. I'm not sure if you maybe mentioned it in, the, in your episode before about Astali Menke, um, Quentin Tarantino's oh. editor, his oh, his yes, only yes, editor yes. all the way through in Glorious Bastards. And I think if you know if we're talking about Quentin Tarantino, at some point we just need to mention yeah. how you know how oh, integral she is to the whole thing. Part of, yeah. And we probably wouldn't have yeah. the films that we're talking about now if it wasn't for her as well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, thanks for remembering, actually, because we probably should have mentioned that last time, and we didn't. On this note, though, what I find very notable about Death Proof is Tarantino was the director of photography here. Yeah. Now, that's interesting. And, like, to give him credit, he does a pretty fucking good job. But I love that about this film, rewatching it. It feels so authentically messy, not messy, uh, dirty and low budget, like these old you know, exploitation films did. And a, a huge part of that is this kind of... It's not amateur cinematography at all. It's someone who kind of knows what they're doing but hasn't got much experience behind the camera photography. It's someone with a real artistic eye who's just not as experienced as... as... But no, and no budget or equipment. Yeah, That's and, that and the end it. result is it plays like one of these old films. It feels like you're watching something akin to The Evil Dead or... I don't know, I, I Spit on Your Grave, or one of these old exploitation films from the 70s, and I think it's a huge part of the tone of this film, and and I mean, without getting ahead of myself, like, basically, I, I really enjoyed Death Proof a hell of a lot more on this rewatch than I did the first time. I, I despised it when I first saw it. <laughs> um, yeah, I haven't got past that point yet. <laughs> giving it a proper chance, Cisco, I think I kind of appreciated where it was coming from a bit more. Although my next note is, um, this is boring. So It's incredibly boring. Yeah. Uh, it suffers from wanting to be an ode, or like a mimicry again, of that kind of, you know, exploitation genre. While also still being a Quentin Tarantino yeah. film, where there's lots of shots of girls talking about Yeah, stuff yeah and-, and I completely agree. There's some very long conversations about yeah, stuff nothing. that isn't relevant to anything, yeah. other than to maybe establish character and. But we we talked about this last week that that's something Tarantino does very well, uh, just sort of bullshit scenes that establish character. But here the problem is that they don't really establish any character, or the characters are all the same. They're all just really annoying. I think they're established well enough, and you get a sense of who they are. But I think that mm-hmm. I think that would come across without hearing them talk for 10 minutes about the it's guy so they're fucking or... It, it was 20 minutes in before I realised it wasn't set in the 70s because she started sending text that, Yeah, that really threw me because it feels awkwardly like it kind of is but isn't and yeah but I think that's just yeah. part of what they're doing with the homage. I don't yeah, mind that kind of awkward time it. feel. I think that's fine. 
I mean, uh, talking about the time period, actually, when she gets the mo- the mobile phone out, I thought, oh, that's really weird. It's not the 70s, but they've gone for, like, a really retro old-school mobile phone. I wonder why that is. And then I just <laughs> remembered that it was made 10 years ago. And <laughs> yeah. It look like that. Um, so that really threw yeah, me. Yeah, but uh, all we're getting from this beginning, the whole f- f- fucking 40 minutes or whatever it is. It's very just, slow. just talking. And you get Stuntman Mike introduced. But by that point, I'm already... I'm thinking... I want to murder these people because they're <laughs> they're exactly the sort of drunk twats that I would hate. <laughs> so I'm completely on board with him. I quite like when you get to the bar and you that you know there's the thing where one of them's said on her radio show that if you come up to this like she's annoyed her friend by getting a harassed by guys and I like all that interaction, but that isn't just a 10 minute conversation, you know? That's people interacting in different scenes and it doesn't. Mm. It's a lot more smooth. Well, when when uh, when Rose McGowan's character comes in and stuff, and Mike sort of get you get a bit of his character. That's a bit more interesting. There was a, I wasn't sure what I was supposed to be laughing at and what I was supposed to be laughing with, or if it was supposed to be funny. Uh, this is just in my head now. Um, okay, so we all know that Uma Thurman is like his muse or was his muse for like a long time, right? Yeah. Okay, so. Zoe Bell now? Yeah. Him. Do you guys think that Death Proof is... Death Proof is Quentin Tarantino just talking to himself in various mouthpieces through these women who are all different kind of versions of Uma Thurman? I think it's... I think knowing that that had just happened on the previous film, I think it... And Zoe Bell, who is sort of billed as the lead of this film, kind of... Uh-huh. Um, was Uma Thurman's stunt woman in in Kill Bill, lest we forget. I I think it's it's there's no way in hell this wasn't born out of um, from an artistic point of view what had happened. Yeah, that it definitely definitely was a yeah. big part of it. And I don't know what that says really that he's kind of made this light hearted film about a guy who just kills young women and <laughs> by putting them in dangerous car. Uh, situations and then they kick his head in. I don't know. It's, I think, yeah. I think it's one of the weirdly. It seems to be one of the more personal films from Tarantino, yeah. which is very strange. <laughs> it's no, it's a really good point. Um, but yeah, like and like I say, Zoe Bell um, does seem to have become his new Uma Thurman. Um, she pops up in in a lot of the later films as well. Uh, so yeah, I mean that's kind of when the plot kicks in. We we open on a whole load of characters. Who just get murdered after befriending stuntman Mike? He he's got a car that is deathproof, as he puts it, because uh, he's a stuntman, so it's built to withstand insane crashes, um, and he uses that to like, you know, drive into other cars and kill people. Basically, we see him kill a load of people, then we see him meet our actual protagonists. It's kind of like a Coen Brothers esque. Ah, they weren't the lead characters after all. No, do not degrade the Coen brothers like that. <laughs> this is this is we're halfway through the film when these first lot get killed, and and it's just like now I know we didn't just spend forty five minutes listening to these characters just talk shit just so we could have them as the first ten minute. Here's an example of what this guy does. Characters, it's the most annoying thing. <laughs> to, it's. Yeah, that should have been, that basically that whole bit should have been eight minutes, eight minutes at the start of your film to set up yeah. this killer character. Yeah, 
it's the Drew Barrymore <laughs> at the beginning yeah. of Scream. Like that's what it needs to be. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's awful. And oh, by the way, yeah, you're going to talk about the missing reel. Well, yeah, I I want that's a big part of this, and I I'm aware that you're gonna. There's a lot of stuff that was cut from the full length version of this in the Grindhouse version. And I mean, basically, I think this is so much better. I'll I'll, I'll go into it now. Um, Death Proof is so much better as part of Grindhouse for two reasons primarily. Number one, a big chunk of it is like trimmed down. Tarantino spoke about how his approach to the edit was look at it the way uh, these American producers would like buy up. Italian films and then cut them down to the point they were almost unrecognizable and they only just made sense and and um, that was his approach so it is like ruthlessly cut down to the point that it only just makes sense but there's so little plot here that it works um, the characters are so simple you don't need to really get to know them it doesn't really add much to get to know who they are um, the story's so thin that that works so it feels very authentic to those older films that there's been cut to hell uh, it's a lot more breezy. Uh, there's several points where there's a missing reel, one of which is the lap dance that um, that character gives Stuntman Mike, which is just shouldn't have been in the film anyway, because it doesn't well, that's it's it, pointless. That's, it just adds this is like, my, what I wanted to say. No yeah, this is what I want to talk about, because I remember watching this film before, and it went to the lap dance scene, and they went, missing reel, and we cut to something else. So when this came on, it was like, oh, she's about to give him a lap dance, that's good, it's going to be a missing reel, we can get on with this. And then... She proceeded to give him a lap dance. I'm like, what the fuck? So well, that sounds like you have seen the Grindhouse cut first somehow. I must have done at some point, yeah. Okay, so um, the main differences are there's a lot of setup with Kurt Russell stalking the girls, which is um, sets up a bit of nice atmosphere, but that's completely gone in the um, Grindhouse version. He kind of just comes out of nowhere. Uh, the lap dance scene is you're missing real. That's completely gone, and I think the film works so much better with it gone. That's why I think the missing Agreed. real is better here than Planet Terror. Well, that's, it's, it's funny as well because it's like, oh, sexy lap dance. Ah, you're not going to see that. That's yeah. that's kind of funny, you know. And there's it's... a there's a black and white bit where Kurt Russell meets the second bunch of girls, um, which is another missing real in the the Grindhouse version. You know where? Yeah, he is I, I saw that bit. Yeah, um, yeah. So. That's that's the main difference, but so like I say, it's just a, a trimmer cut that makes it work so much better. The other reason this works so much better as part of Grindhouse is you're not viewing it as a standalone feature film. You're viewing it as half of an anthology, like an episode of of you're almost watching it like an episode of Tales from the Crypt or something. And within that context, it's so much more satisfying because this film has a very abrupt ending. There's very little depth or meaning to it. And as a segment in an anthology, within the context of Grindhouse and silly trailers, that's fine. As a standalone feature film, that's just fucking weak. It doesn't really play properly. So Mm. this is a perfect example, I think, of why Grindhouse makes these films play is better than the sum of their parts, as I've said. But anyway, um, so what happens? Basically, the, the, the... there's this whole thing where these uh, this bunch of friends are going to test drive this car so that they can do this weird thing. One of them happens to be Zoe Bell playing herself. Zoe Bell is awesome, by the way. I love her. I think she's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other characters are playing like, you know, the makeup woman and stuff like that. Stunt, another stunt woman. 
Um, so yeah, basically her whole thing is she just wants to, they want to drive the car really fast and she's going to like climb out the window and climb on the bonnet. And they mm-hmm. make a big thing out of this amazing thing she's going to do. You think, oh, she's going to like stand up and surf on the roof or something. No, she's just going to kind of awkwardly drape herself on the car. Yeah. And you have <laughs> you have actually sort of skipped forward the 25, 30 minutes where they just talk for a while before that happens. Well, do you want to talk about what they talk about? <laughs> no, but I'm just, I want to point out, it's just, yeah, the reason <laughs> we've jumped over it is because nothing happens. Um, so then Kurt Russell shows up and they just kind of tries to ram the car into them and drive them off the road and stuff. Uh, and the film's basically been leading up to this. It's just a big car chase action scene. <sighs> I mean, I want to give it credit. I think it's fucking stupid they don't just slam on the brakes and come to yeah, a halt. Yeah, just slow and down. Her, like, get off yeah, the car. Slow down gently like, so she can get off. fly off down yeah. the road and ha- take a bit of time turning around to come like, and get them Like, stuff. Death Proof makes a lot of mistakes, but I think that that part actually wasn't a mistake. I think you're supposed to be shouting... Slow down, slow down, just slow down. You're supposed to be shutting that because probably in a real Grand House film, they would also do the same thing. They would speed up stupidly and try That's to get away. True. But then that comes back to the whole, are we just making a shit film to the point that it becomes shit? I don't know. I don't know. But the thing, but what I'll say here, to give it credit, I think this sequence is done so well. People raved about Mad Max Fury Road because it was, oh, it's real driving and stunts. And. I didn't particularly like that film. It, it, I think, I'm not that impressed with practical stunt work when when you are just throwing money at it. And I don't know, but I think there's something to be said for the very low key stunt work going on here. You can tell it's yeah. all being done for real. Um, that that on top of that, Tarantino sat there trying to grab it on the camera. I think there's something very raw about it that works really nicely, and it feels very authentic again to this kind of film that they're emulating. Yeah, I thought it was exhilarating and Zoe Bell's stunt work is fucking insane. They kind of stop, he catches up with them they like chase after him, beat the shit out of him kick his head in the end of the film and it's really weak abrupt ending when this is a standalone thing but when I say if this is part like part two of a two part thing with all these little bits in you're kind of more forgiving of that the fact that it is just a little you watch short parts of an anthology and you you know they often don't come back round as well as a fully fleshed out narrative would and so yeah there you go the difference between this in the standalone version and the grindhouse version is half an hour of uh, footage and the contextualization they're the two main things and that's why i think it works so much better as part of grindhouse it probably make quite a good trailer fake trailer <laughs> yeah yeah this is going to be kind of like more of a nonner thing to say. It's kind of a general thing I have about Quentin Tarantino, and I think like a uh, Kill Bill and uh, Death Proof are very emblematic of it. I think that Quentin Tarantino is the daft punk of the film world. <laughs> <laughs> He's not that bad. Be- beca- <laughs> okay, daft punk sample all of their songs. At the start, when I was explaining. Um... Where the impressions people will know for you. I'm sure I've spoken about the Daft Punks yeah. on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> listeners have probably gone. Well, why has he gone into a? Why has he done a weird Irish thing? Why has he gone kind of Northern Irish when he says Daft Punk? That's really well. Weird. This is fucking why right here. Now yeah, they know. This is it. Like, like, okay. Well, Daft Punk they sample all of their stuff. Like every part of their song is a sample or something taken from somewhere else, whether it's played in their studio or not. Quentin Tarantino pretty much does the same thing. 
like to his benefit and detriment. Every shot, every character, every reference, every mimicry, it's all a hark back to another film that he saw presumably working in that video shop years and years ago or somewhere else along the way. And what he consistently does is take all these little samples and build something, like you said, that is always consistently greater than the sum of its parts. He always takes these kind of small snippets and builds them up into something new. Um, I think that's true. I, it annoys me when people criticise Tarantino for the way he'll like take inspiration from places because I, I think it's very unfounded. If you actually watch the films he's borrowing from, he's never like ripping off a a story or a you know plot beat it's always like oh i like this shot here and that's influenced me here it's 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 a lot more subtle than i think people often realize yeah. when they talk about this sort of thing um but i agree like death proof suffers from the fact that it's not really i think most of his films are imbued with a bit more subtext and meaning beyond just copying stuff and death proof doesn't really feel like it has any of that mm mm-hmm. But, I mean, having said that, I, I think, personally, I think Death Proof's much better than Planet Terror, having rewatched these. I think it's a far more entertaining, coherent film. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. As as people who've seen Grindhouse as a whole experience, uh, what would you give Grindhouse out of ten, Connor, as a whole? As a whole, I'd give it a seven. Yeah, seven from me as well. It's, it's, yeah. um, it's a noble attempt at... at doing something um but then individually planet terror how, how would you guys give that a rating out of the old tens i don't want to rate that one because i haven't seen it for many years right. so i wouldn't justify it well i i'd give it a very generous six out of ten i remember having very fond memories of it uh, that could have been watching in different mind frame i'll give it the most fresh one in my head which is a six to be honest all righty and then Death Proof as a separate thing, if we're all going to weigh in here. Um, I, I'm going to give it a very generous, probably very controversial 7. Because I do kind of respect what it's doing on a lot of levels, even though I think it's very messy, it doesn't quite come together. It's still quite interesting. I, I do like a lot of the craftsmanship behind it. So yeah, 7. On its own, honestly, I'd give Death Proof a 5. Like, I can see what it's going for, and, and it's flawed... But, but like, like, I can see what's going for, but that doesn't excuse its flaws. Yeah. And the five yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that I don't like it, but I have a hard time kind of justifying it, I suppose. Yeah, no, I get that. I, I used to have it as a four out of ten. I, like, significantly came around on that on the rewatch. I, I've found a much... Um, I found a real appreciation for a lot of elements of it, so... I might have swung too hard in the other direction because I felt like mm. I've been so harsh the first time. But I'll. Yeah, well, I didn't like it. I didn't appreciate what it was doing. It was very dull. I give it two out of ten. Oosh. Oh. And I felt like Oof. I was being generous. It was generous. I think that's. I think that's very unfair. I think that's pretty unfair. Even when I despise this film, I only gave it four. Alan, Alan, on this one, we respectfully disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck your respect. (laughs) I disrespectfully call you a twat. If you're thinking about respecting Alan's opinion, (laughs) (laughs) I've got some stuff about sequels to all these films that never happened um, that I'll go into. Uh, Kill Bill Volume 3 has been spoken about every few years, basically, since those films came out. Tarantino said he wanted it to be, Kill Bill to be part one of a trilogy, his Dollars trilogy, as he put it, 
with the third film set, or arguably the second film set, ten years on, about the little kid at the start of uh, the film coming back to get revenge against the bride for killing ten her years mother. on. Yeah, isn't she five years old? Uh, I, um, so. I just think someone a little bit older might have been better. Okay. Well, maybe, but well, 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 Oren, Oren Ishii killed that Yakuza yeah. boss when she was like what eleven or twelve or something. And I, I mean, I quite like that idea because it she has got a legitimate grievance with the bride, and it's kind of acknowledging that and looking at another perspective and flipping it on its head. And I think the idea was then part three would be about characters dealing with her, and there was going to be this thing that fed like a human centipede that fed into each film into the next. Uh, that's almost certainly never going to happen now because like a lot more than ten years have passed. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, then apparently after Grindhouse came out, Tarantino said he wanted to make two anime sequels to to Kill Bill, or arguably sp- uh, spin-offs. One being a prequel about Bill and who he is and where he came from. One being an origin story about the bride. I think that would be a nice little side thing. He wouldn't necessarily have to direct them himself, just kind of expand the world. But again, that obviously never happened. Mm-hmm. I think the time's passed and people wouldn't be that interested now. Yeah. Then... He changed his mind and was going to do parts three and four, closing out the Revenge trilogy, with part three being uh, Revenge of the Woman Who Got Her Arm Chopped Off by the Bride and uh, Daryl Hannah with No Eyes, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> part four being a cycle of daughters avenging their mothers who've all been killed. So similar, but it's developed a bit with time, I guess. Uh, but then in 2012, Tarantino just said, yeah, it's probably never going to have a sequel. Although... Then in 2016, apparently he spoke to Uma Thurman about it, and it was looking more positive and likely. So maybe one day, <laughs> but I mean, yeah. But then he hashed out this Star Trek idea with JJ Abrams. <laughs> like... Well, this is the thing. If if I have a choice between Kill Bill Volume Three and a new Tarantino film that's nothing to do with it, I'll take the new Tarantino film. Yeah, yeah, without yeah. question. So I'm not too fussed. Uh, We're running out of time, though, because he said that he wants to stop when he's, like, around 60. And anyway, yeah, so Grindhouse nearly spawned off uh, all sorts of things. We obviously got Machete and Machete Kills, and in theory there's going to be Machete Kills in space, but we'll see about that one. Uh, (laughs) Hobo with a Shotgun, if you include that, got a full-length version. Edgar Wright and Eli Roth both um, talked about making full-length versions of their film, often saying, we'll do it as Grindhouse 2. Tarantino said he wanted to do Grindhouse 2, like this was before the first film came out and flopped, I think. He said he wanted to do Grindhouse 2 and his segment would be an old school kung fu movie in Mandarin and he wanted to release it in some countries with subtitles and a shorter dubbed version in other countries, which is, I mean, it's very on brand for Tarantino, I suppose. And uh, it it obviously didn't do very well, which I think is a real shame. Because honestly, I I think the idea of of a a sort of franchise where you just get two, you know, interesting auteur directors to make a weird genre throwback to like the seventies and eighties, and and then these other directors come up with mad trailers to put in between. I think that's such a cool idea for a franchise. Put one out every few years, produced by Tarantino and Rodriguez, but with you know. Like I say, an Edgar Wright film, an Eli Roth film, Kevin Smith will probably do one at one point. He's mates with them, isn't he? Like, all their mates. I think that could be really cool, but um, never happened, sadly. Never mm. will, I imagine. Well, I'm happy the Eli Roth stuff didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I think I'd rather see him make a full-length Thanksgiving than anything else he's ever made. <laughs> I would go into it extremely sceptical and ready to tear it to pieces. I watched Hostel for the first time a few days ago. Oh, God help you. I mean, I don't know what I expected, but it's not great, is it? <laughs> what does Quentin Tarantino see in him? We we spoke a little bit last week. We've touched on it a little bit here, but not massively. How Tarantino is one of these um, sort of almost jukebox directors who loves just plucking songs out and curating a soundtrack, and I think that's a big part mm-hmm. of what people enjoy in his films. But then he is often criticised, and these sorts of directors are often criticised for almost bending over backwards to work bits of music into the soundtrack and blah 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 blah. blah. So I figured for our our pitch this week. Uh, for a sequel, we could try... I, I've selected a whole load of musical clips here um, okay. that seem like things Tarantino would like and put in his films, and I figured if we just make a film up based on the music, see if it inspires you at all. Okay. I don't know if it'll Does Tarantino work. like Electric Six? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, I went through every Electric Six song I could find, like, looking for... <laughs> <laughs> looking for something that would sound on on brand. Yeah, uh, Tarantino, do you like the Daft Punk? Have you have you ever have you ever heard of the Daft <laughs> Punk, there, Tarantino? Around the world, have you heard of that one? <laughs> this will be the music that plays over the opening credits. You know, just a, a really long shot over the opening credits. Okay, yeah. All right. Um, see if it inspires you to think of anything, any imagery. We'll we'll see what happens. <laughs> Conjure up any images. Yeah, I'm getting. I'm seeing. Um, I, I don't know. I was seeing someone sort of in a boring office job, just sat at a desk. All right. Is it a period piece at all, or is it modern? Uh, 2001. So it's a woman with a feet out. <laughs> yeah. Right. Set in 2001. There's a woman. At an no, he's he's just in his office, but his secretary, like, she's taking her shoes off, and he's like, he's distracted from his work. And he's watching so. through the through the like glass wall. Yeah, it's about a middle-aged man, like, he's tempted to have an affair. All right. Right. Let's see what happens next, and if it inspires the next bit of the story. Okay, I got it. Alright. This is the teenage daughter of the of our main guy. And she's like living a wild wildlife, teenage life, they're in a car. But her and some friends are like, Woo! We're in a car, woo! And like there's no top on the car. Alright. Uh, that's that bit. And then it, obviously there'll be some rebellion here later on. I'm just making American beauty of them. <laughs> <laughs> This is the wife's theme song. I think this gets played after someone gets murdered in a club. <laughs> like, you know, someone gets shot gruesomely and the whole club clears out and, you know, it's this song playing while the the person who committed the murder, you know, revels in his glory. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but how do we connect it to the teenage girl and the businessman and the lady with her shoes off? Well, maybe the businessman goes to a club to, to unwind after work. And he gets shot the fuck up by this person, maybe. 
No, no, he's, he's, he's peripheral, he just sees it. It's kind of like a voyeuristic thing going on here from Alan. Ooh. And then what, he's gonna go home to his, his daughter? Look at her feet. <laughs> right, we need more inspiration. What, what else happens? This is suspense. This is near the end. Is this the theme song to a 1970s TV show? Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is the theme from uh, it's a theme from Buck Rogers in the whatever it was century. That's a very Tarantino thing to do. If like to me the first part of that sounds like the build up to like a final boss fight. You know. Well it sounded very suspenseful like we were sneaking up on something. Yeah. So that was a bit like yeah, the cheery part, gone, but that first part building up to right. a very understated but skillful kind of battle well, showdown. Like, yeah. Tarantino will just use like five seconds from a song before it shifts gear, so that'd be on brand if he just used that intro. Exactly. Alright, he comes home and someone's that same guy <laughs> that he saw in the bar. It's like Spider Man, he didn't <laughs> stop him. And now he's gone home and killed his daughter and wife. Cut their feet off as well. It's a revenge story. Uh, yeah, and that's it. He's got he's got to get revenge on this guy. Yeah, maybe maybe he slighted this guy in the bar, but he didn't stop him. So he know he knew where he lived. So he went wait, home. Wait. And... I want the ending of this film to be it finds out it was him all along. Okay, <laughs> sort of Fight Club style <laughs> double personality thing. This is the killer burying the daughter's feet. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You only you only ever see his hands. No, he keeps the feet. So it's him going back to his lair, <laughs> opening up the fridge, putting the feet in with all the other feet. This is just where we get an insight into who's done it. We see it was that guy from earlier. So this is some there's some weird serial killer shit. This is what we're getting into. Give me a ticket for an aeroplane. <laughs> Ain't got time to take a fast train. So this is he gets home and he's put the stuff in the fridge and then he puts this song on on his record player because he loves it and he's like just dancing around like licking feet, dancing with the feet. <laughs> we forgot to have the 10 minute conversation the killer has with the daughter before he cuts her feet on. <laughs> <laughs> Although I worry that a serial killer with like interesting taste in music might be a bit derivative of like Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal Lecter films, uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, American Psycho. Yeah, but this is Quentin Tarantino, so it's an homage, so fuck, it's fine. The very ominous drums. Okay, I'm seeing derangement, flashing lights, he's whirling around in panic. Is this where he finds his dead daughter or whatever? This 
sounds like the Daft Punk. Yeah, this is something they would sample. Let's see what happens. Let's skip on. Ooh. Is this where- maybe this is where we find out that the, the killer and the dad are the same guy. How does that happen though? How does that twist, like, unfurl? He looks in the mirror and he realises that he's the same guy. It's the first draft. I wonder where you pushed or where you led. Why did you do it? Why did you do that thing to me? Oh, this is good. <laughs> this is the deciding to commit suicide scene. Yeah. Like he's slowly tying a rope around his neck. Do you remember that piece of music I said earlier? That ha that like the sh that sounded like a short build up to a boss fight. This is the piece of music after that that further builds up to the boss fight. Like you know, fist like good, the bad, and the ugly super extension, drawing out the tension unnecessarily kind of thing. I think this needs to like punctuate an action scene somehow. Any ideas how we can work that in? I, I think that needs to be in there. So that's that's like something the bride would be killing people to. Can he fight with himself? Like <laughs> he's realised he's himself. Well, so so he was about to hang himself and weighing up like, oh, I want to die. But then maybe the the killer persona takes over. So it's just like a weird fight with himself. And now he's in a warehouse and the killer's henchmen have shown up. <laughs> with stump feet and he's been chopping feet off to get the new feet. <laughs> yeah, that's where he's been getting the feet from. These are like his devotees or something. All these freaks. So on the feet they've all got, it's like Rose McGowan in Planet Terror. On their feet they've just got like knives. <laughs> really sharp peg legs. Intermission! <laughs> The happy ever after ending, but with a bitter twist. I think this is the scene as he's like dying. This is like an inglorious bastards when there's Semenio Marconi yeah, over the top. Yeah, but he's happy to be dying, so that's why it's. Yeah. Oh, I love this. One of Ennio Marconi's finest themes. What What do I know that from? What TV show is that used as? This... It was It was used as the theme tune to Ninety Nine. Ninety Nine. That's what it was. Yeah. But it was originally the theme to My Name Is Nobody, a, a western scored by Ennio Morricone. Alright, so he's killed himself, it's that bittersweet bit, but then we go into the intermission and it plays the intermission out. <laughs> so that's the halfway point is where he kills himself. <laughs> so uh, have we made Grindhouse Part 2? Like, Yeah, it's like, but that's fine, it's like when you go to see a show on the West End, it's like, Act 1's much longer than Act 2. <laughs> Oh, that's the professional. Le professionnel. Yeah, have you seen that? It's shit, but kind of funny and sometimes. I really recommend it. This is the end credits, then, isn't it? Yeah, this is it. This is the last one. Yeah, this is a good, sort of, slightly sad... It's a sad film, ultimately. 
Yeah. I just saw pictures of feet floating around. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, there we go. It's a revenge film. Um, he has spoken about wanting to do horror at some point properly, so serial killer, you could do some of that. Uh-huh. This is his foray into that. But I like the idea is that he'd really lean into the feet thing as well, because he, he's, you know, that's a big part of his film, so he's <laughs> never really gone into it in a massive amount of detail. Alright. Cool. Okay. It was a pleasure, lads. A pleasure. Yeah, thank you ever so much for coming on the show, there. Not a problem, boy. Was that Jamaican or Irish? What the fuck did I just do? <laughs> And next week we are doing, um, well, of course, Inglorious Bastards. We're, we're seeing out the end, the back end of Tarantino's career in Glorious Bastards, Django Unchained, The Hateful Eight. We've got a, a good guest host for next week that I think you'll be very pleased with, listeners. So, Inglorious Bastards is a work of absolute total genius, unparalleled. <laughs> Ooh. Well, we'll see. Right, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see about that. Yes, thank you, listener, for listening. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode as ever. Thanks again to Connor Murray for guest hosting. As stated, we will be back next week with a uh, pretty good host for you guys to cover Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, and The Hateful Eight, as well as looking at the future of Tarantino's career in a bit more detail than we already have, as well as looking at the future of Tarantino's career. As always, if you've enjoyed the show, we would be immensely in your debt if you were to be so kind as to rate and review us on iTunes as well as following us on Facebook facebook.com forward slash diminishing returns podcast twitter at dim returns pod and of course our soundcloud page and as always check out the official website dimreturns.com there are links to uh, our entire back catalogue there some other cool bits and bobs all our social media links are there too now, to play us out, I was going to drop on some audio I have of Connor attempting to do karaoke of Around the World by Daft Punk, the song in which the only lyrics are Around the World, Around the World, Around the World, over and over and over. But it was just annoying, so here you can have this instead. Garth, I'm the Leprechaun! Cool it, okay. I'm the Leprechaun! Stop it, alright? Don't try and steal me, Patago! Is that me gold? What the hell are you? I'm a leprechaun, me dear. It sounds like me gold. <laughs> it looks like me gold. <laughs> it smells like me gold. <laughs> mm. It tastes like me gold. <laughs> me gold and delicious gold. <laughs> Yo, man, want me gold? Come on, take them. It's real milk chocolate. Oh, that's a hot, 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 that's a hot,